How about? I think it's working now. <laughs> okay. Well, as Dave said, we started this series last week called Puzzled, and we're talking about those times or seasons in our life, and maybe, maybe you're in one today where God's activity, or better yet, his inactivity or his silence has left you puzzled. Maybe you asked for something, something was going on in your life, and you asked God for something, and you did everything you knew how to do to get God's attention. You prayed about it. You had other people pray about it. You laid hands on it. You, you fasted over it. You read your Bible. You tried to, to be the best you you could be. You did everything you knew you could do to get God's attention, but nothing seemed to work. And if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, but you just have maybe like this, just this belief in that there is a God, not really sure what that looks like, we all have that in common, don't we? We all have it, we all have it in common that there have been times in our lives where we have prayed and we've prayed hard, done everything we could do, and for whatever reason, God just wouldn't do it. And it's in times like that that we're puzzled by what seems like God's silence or inactivity that we're faced with a defining moment in, in our lives. A moment when God doesn't act like we expected or thought he would act or prayed he would. In fact, many times God acts in the way we prayed he wouldn't act. But it's in times like that that God in a very unique time and place has our attention like none other. And we're faced with a defining moment. In those times when we're puzzled, we're faced with that uncertainty, and God has us right where he wants us. Are we going to move towards God and keep trusting in times when it doesn't even make sense to us? Or are we going to say, not again, God. I'm going to walk. I'm going to move on my own. I'm not going to follow you anymore. And, and here's my heart's desire with this series. My heart's desire with this series is that we will see that there is a way to come to faith or maintain your faith even when God leaves you puzzled. That God sometimes is doing his greatest work in us when we can't understand everything he's doing. That sometimes God has allowed or even caused the night to get so dark He's caused it. He's allowed it, whatever it is, because he's doing something so powerful and so defining in us. And sometimes he gives the answers to those questions that we face, and sometimes the answers never come. But as we're going to see from today's story, there is a way to have faith and trust in God when you can't understand everything he's up to. And to illustrate this, what I want to do this morning as we kind of start, and this is maybe mostly for the guys because maybe... If you're a guy, you're thinking, I'm not really sure I even wanted to come this morning, and now things just seem kind of heavy. So what I'm going to do, just maybe just for you guys, I want to start off by, to illustrate this by giving you a baseball illustration. All right? I heard this a while back ago, and I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. A few years ago, Yale physicist Robert Adair, this guy right here, he studied the science behind hitting a major league fastball. And his conclusion was absolutely amazing. I'll give you some figures as we kind of go along. This is all about hitting a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. Here's what Robert Adair figured out. He said this. He said, a 90-mile-an-hour fastball goes 60 feet 6 inches from the pitcher's mound to home plate in 400 milliseconds. That's how long it takes for the ball to get from the pitcher's mound to home plate. That's a little less than half a second, 400 milliseconds. Now, here's the cool part. He said half of that time is spent by the batter just trying to recognize the ball in space 
in deciding, do I swing or not swing? Half of that time is just spent by trying to find the ball and deciding, do I swing or not? So half the time is gone before he's even started to swing. Now, if the batter decides to swing, he spends the next 100 milliseconds thinking, do I swing high? Do I swing low? Is it an inside pitch? Is it an outside pitch? What do I do? Then, he says, the swing itself takes 150 milliseconds. He said in the first 50 milliseconds, the batter can kind of, he has enough time and power to stop the swing. He can check a swing. But after the first 50 milliseconds, he's, it's gone too far. The, the bat is going to go through the strike zone. And here was this, just the amazing part. He said it all comes down to seven milliseconds as to whether or not the ball is placed fair or foul. So here's what our Yale physicist, super smart guy, concluded. And if you're good at math, you're already there. He concluded that hitting a 90-mile-per-hour fastball is scientifically impossible. Can't be done. I mean, look at it. The facts are right there, right? I mean, it just takes too long to go through the entire swinging process. This might be good news for Reds hitters. I'm not sure. But it's just scientifically, it can't be done. His conclusion, 90-mile-per-hour fastball, if it's 90 or more, you can't hit it. Now, there's just one problem with that. You don't buy that, do you? I mean, I don't believe that, right? And I mean, I'm sure there's nobody here who can walk up to the front and say, well, here, I'm not a, I'm not a Yale. I'm a Harvard physicist. I mean, let me tell you where his math is off. I mean, nobody can tell you here why or how his math is off. I can't. But nobody believes that. I mean, in fact, you might think this. You might think, Tim, Dr. Dare, if you're listening, I know you're wrong because I've seen it done. I can't explain it. I don't have the math behind it, but I've seen it done. And more than this, I've seen a 95-mile-per-hour fastball hit. Not just a 90, but a 95. And if you continue with the research, this is just amazing. As, as he kind of kept it going, for a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, here's what it's like. He said, it's comparable to putting you or me in the batter's box, putting a blindfold around our eyes, and being told the pitcher's getting ready to pitch and just swinging the bat. That's the same likelihood of making contact. It's just impossible to do it. 90, 95, even faster, it's impossible to hit it. Yeah, you don't buy that, do you? Why is that? Let me tell you. Here's why. Because we are smart enough not to opt for the unexplainable over the undeniable. Hitting a 90 or 95 mile per hour fastball is unexplainable. Can't explain it. The science, it, it just, just does not work out. But it's not undeniable because we've seen it happen. I mean, you go over to the Reds game today, this afternoon if they play, you're going to see a number of people, mostly from the Nationals, but a number of people hitting 90 or 95 mile an hour fastballs all day long. It's going to happen all day. And, and the science says it can't happen. It's nearly impossible, but yet you're going to say, I know it's not impossible. I see it all the time. And we do this in every area of our life. We go with the undeniable over the unexplainable. When they first gave me one of these things, I didn't look at it and say, hey, before I put this on, maybe I should have today, but before I put this on, explain to me how that thing works. I want to know the science behind it. I want to understand, I mean, I don't want to go up there and have this plastic, rubbery, kind of wiry thing on my face and, have, and ex just make a fool of myself expecting this to project my voice. Not at all. In fact, I didn't even want to know how it worked. 
I just said, you know, I've seen it happen before. I've seen other people use it. I just put it on and kept going. And in every area of your life, in a million ways, we do things, we use things that we can't explain how it works. It's completely unexplainable. But it's undeniable that it does work, so we just go with it. And listen, this is not to discount the importance of good questions and good answers to good questions. And this message is by no means meant to belittle your good questions. But there are some things in life we will never get a good explanation to. But we know things that are undeniably true, and we just kind of move with it. And the story we're going to look at today highlights that for us. Today's story, if you brought your Bible, we're going to be in two different places. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll kind of flip back and forth because it takes both to tell the story. But today's story is incredible because you've got everything you would want in a good story. You've got royalty. You've got a love triangle. You've got vicious power plays. They even throw some dancing in there. You've got a prison. You've got a crazy guy who runs around eating locusts, wearing weird clothes, talking about a Messiah. And then you've got an end that nobody saw coming. It's just a fascinating story. You've got to read your Bible. There's good stuff there. We're going to be in Mark 6 and in Matthew 11. Takes both to tell the story. And while you're looking at it, let me kind of set it up for you. Here's what's going on. When Jesus was born, and, and you know this from the Christmas story, When Jesus was born, the king at that time was a man named King Herod. He was king of Israel. And he was an absolutely evil, evil man. Just a horrible man. If you know his story, you know that when Jesus was born, when he heard a new king had been born, he sent soldiers into the towns to kill all the babies that had been born. He was so evil. This this, this was fascinating. King Herod was so evil that when he realized he was about to die, he sent his men into Galilee and said, round up all the leading citizens of Galilee and put them in prison. And the day I die, I want you to execute these people publicly because on the day I die, I want there to be mourning in the streets. Because he knew on the day he would die, there would be partying in the streets. So they rounded up all the leading citizens, put them in jail. And thankfully, on the day he died, instead, they just opened up the prisons, let them out, and there was indeed partying in the streets. Well, one day, Once he died, that happens, Rome came in and they divided his kingdom. They said it's too much for one person, and he had three sons. And they divided his kingdom amongst two of his sons. The key person being this guy named Herod Antipas. The Bible calls him Herod from here on out, so we'll just call him Herod too. Herod Antipas got a big chunk, but his brother Philip got nothing at all. Philip got nothing. He got, he got some wealth. He got that. He got, as we're going to find out, he got a beautiful wife, desirable wife, but he didn't get any power. He didn't get any land. He got all this kind of stuff. Well, one day, here's what happened. One day, Herod, King Herod Antipas, he's king now over this region, he goes one day to visit, I mean, are you following me here? He goes to visit his, his brother Philip and his wife Herodias. He goes to visit them. And while he's going to visit them, he notices Herodias. And he notices her beauty. And by now, Herodias and Philip had had a, a young daughter, a little girl named Salome. He notices, he, notices, um, he notices Herodias. And he walks over to Herodias, King Herod does. And he, his brother's out doing something else. And he says, Herodias, I think I love you. And she said, well, honey, I think I love you too. So they quickly, they get up. Herodias leaves where she is. She moves into the king's palace, and the tabloids are just all over it. It is a huge, just 
just time of, I mean, of just shame for the king, but he doesn't care because the king has what he wanted. He has his kingdom. He has the woman he wanted, and Herodias, life's really good for her because she goes from kind of being a nobody to now being the queen. Philip's life stinks, but it's working out for everybody else except or until our next character in the story shows up. Our next character is a man by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is another guy who had a whole lot going for him. He was Jesus' cousin, which is pretty good. He had a special calling from God to go into Galilee, which was King Herod's kind of main territory, and preach a very simple message. His very simple message was, stop it. Knock it off. Don't do what you're doing anymore. Turn around. Repent. He was a prophet of God who was called to preach a very simple yet strong message of repentance. John was telling people, hey, God is about to do something entirely new and different. A new king, a Messiah is coming. He's about to do this. And if you don't get the sin out of your life, you're going to miss it. So John is just going around preaching this message. And when Herod takes his brother Philip's wife as his wife, John doesn't miss a beat. He jumps on this, and he's constantly publicly telling people that the king is living in sin, he's wrong, he's an adulterer. He just goes on and on and on. And Herod and Herodias hated this. And some people thought John was a little odd. I mean, he ate funny, he dressed funny, he, he's constantly yelling and screaming at people, telling them that they're sinners. But the common people, the common people love this guy. I mean, they loved that he spoke boldly and fearlessly, and they started to follow him. John started to baptize some of these people. Some of these people left their jobs, and they just traveled with John wherever John went. And one of the things that drew a lot of attention for John was that when King Herod had his wife everywhere he went, and now this group of people, they're continually saying the king is living in sin. John's on the forefront of this. He's saying it has to stop. And Herod was kind of confused, as we'll see later, but Herodias started to hate John. And not just hate him a little bit, she wanted him dead. That's the setup for the story. Pretty exciting, right? What's going to happen next? Well, let's pick it up here. In Mark 6, Verses 17 to 19, kind of, kind of jump in the middle, kind of a summary of what we just said. Here's, here's how it reads. It says, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Herodias didn't just want John out of the picture. She wanted John completely out of the picture. It was like John was the voice of her conscience saying, you really shouldn't be with your husband's brother. You shouldn't do that. And she wanted to kill to end that voice. But, Scripture goes on and says, she was not able to. She wasn't able to have him executed. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled because he liked to listen to him. You see, apparently what would happen with this? King Herod, he had arrested John. He had him put in prison. And when King Herod would have a little bit of free time, he would say, somebody fetch me that peculiar, locust-eating, weird-dressing kind of goof man in the basement. Bring him up. I want to hear him talk to me. 
So sure enough, they'd go down, they would get John, and John would come up to the king, and Herod would say, preach to me, John. And John would be like, okay, um, a Messiah is coming, a true, a new king is coming, and by the way, you're a no good sinner, you're an adulterer, you're living in sin. He'd be like, okay, I know about that part, tell me about the other stuff. So he would just kind of for fun bring John up, and John would just launch into all this stuff. Because you see, even though Herod didn't like everything John had to say, Herod just knew or just felt in his heart that there's just something different about this guy. Herod thought, there's just something special about him, and it's bad enough that I put this, this really this holy man is what Herod thought, in prison, but there's no way I can kill him. He's just too good. He doesn't even deserve to be in prison. So here's the difficult part in the story. Be John for a minute. Try to be John the Baptist. You've been given this special calling or responsibility by God to announce Jesus, to prepare the way for the Messiah, to confront sin wherever you find it at great cost, even if it's the king, and you've done it. You have been faithful to this calling, and now you're in prison. Be John for a minute. John has developed this loyal following while he's been doing all this. And wouldn't it be really easy if John would have been just a little bit prideful? Wouldn't it have been, I mean, we would have understood if just a little bit, if John would have thought, I have something to offer Jesus. I have all these followers. I have, I have something I can offer him but not John. In fact, if you know the story, one day John is out baptizing and he's just, he's just dunking these people and he sees in the distance Jesus coming towards him. And immediately John just says, stop. Everybody kind of looks around and says, there's the guy I've been talking about. Stop following me. Follow that guy. I'm dirt compared to him. I shouldn't even be able to bend over and lace up his sandals. Stop following me. I know you gave up your jobs. I know you've kind of lost your normal life. Stop following me. That's the guy I've been talking about. Go follow him. You'd think John would have a little bit of pride. Not at all. John's done all that, and he's rotting in prison. Be John for a minute. John baptizes Jesus. He sees the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. Then he hears a voice out of heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm greatly pleased. And John witnesses all of this. He has a front row seat, and he's been entirely faithful to his calling. He's been entirely faithful to God. Wouldn't it be easy for John to think, yet God has not been faithful to me? Because today, in the story, John sits languishing in and suffering in a prison cell. And it's a fate he does not deserve. One last time. Be John for a minute. And your friends come to you while you're sitting there in prison. And they start to tell you about all the miracles Jesus has been doing. He's been out healing blind people. He's been driving demons out of people. He's been healing lepers. He's even been healing Roman people, complete strangers. And all the while that he's been doing that, you've been rotting away in a prison cell. And John, to say the least, was puzzled by this. And we understand it. You see, John began to have second thoughts. John began to have some doubts about Jesus. So one day, 
John's friends are visiting Jesus. And, or John's, friend, John's friends are visiting John. They're in prison. And John's friends start telling him, again, all this stuff about Jesus. And John says, hey, guys, okay, I've, I've heard enough. I need you guys to do me a favor. Yeah, John, anything for you. We'll do anything you want. I'd like you to take this message to Jesus for me. Sure, John, we'll do it. What do you want us to tell him? Matthew, in Matthew 11, Matthew picks up the story. Here's what John said to his friends. It says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And I'm sure John's friends are writing this and thought, okay, stop, John, hold on a minute. Is that really what you want to say? I mean, John, I mean, I realize things aren't looking too good for you, John, but this is the guy that you told us was the guy. I mean, this is the guy you told us that you came to kind of prepare a way for. Are you sure you want us to go back and ask him this question? Yeah, guys, I know, but I'm just having second thoughts. I mean, guys, I can't figure out why he hasn't done something about my situation. It doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't add up. And guys, I've had a whole lot of time sitting here in this prison to think, and I don't understand what Jesus is up to. Surely he would have and should have done something for me. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Isn't it interesting how a change in our circumstance, good or bad, isn't it interesting how that impacts our confidence in God? It's true for all of us, isn't it? I mean, maybe something really good happens, and you get a raise, you get that job, you pass that class, you get into that school, the test results come back, and everything is cleared up, whatever it is, and we just think, oh, God is so good. You turn on some praise music. You're just ready to get your praise on. I mean, God is fantastic. He is wonderful. I love him. God is so good. He's faithful. All that stuff. We all do that, right? But then, then, one day your circumstances take a turn. You fail the class. You don't get into the school. You don't get the job. The health insurance runs out. The news doesn't come back good. But whatever it is, the news is bad. And suddenly... We're just not quite sure about God because we're sure he would have done something and he hasn't and we doubt. And, and, and understand, I'm not picking on you because I think this is true for all of us. It's been true in my life. Life is good, so God must be good. Life is bad, mm, not really sure about God. What is that? I mean, what does that say about us? Remember how we showed this last time? Last time we said, we, we said it this way. We said, when you have a problem, I pray for you. But when I have a problem, I doubt and I question God. What is that? Here's another way to say it. Another way to say it is, is this way. We'll put it up on the screen for you. I lose faith when God is inattentive to my happiness, not yours. In other words... This happens all the time, doesn't it? When you're faced with something difficult, man, I'll visit you, I'll pray with you, I'll do anything you need me to do, but your problems don't impact my faith. Why is that? Why do I only doubt or question God when problems visit me or the ones I care about most? 
And isn't that true for all of us? I mean, we totally understand why John the Baptist has these questions here. We totally understand why he tells his friends, hey, guys, I heard all the great, but can you just go back and say, are you the one or should I be looking for somebody else? I mean, John's question makes a ton of sense because it's the question, it's the question I know I would have had. And that is what makes Jesus' response to his question so fascinating and so incredibly relevant and important to us this morning. As we look at it in here in just a minute, what I want you to notice is a couple things. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say to that question. What he doesn't say is, oh, of course I'm the one. You go back and tell John I'm the one and tell John he needs to man up. Jesus doesn't say that. Do you know what else Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, yeah, I'm the one. And at midnight, we're breaking him out. He doesn't say that either. Here is how John, his question, is responded to by Jesus. And it's not just for John. I think it's, it just jumps over the millennia all the way to us today as we are puzzled by God's lack of, or seemingly lack of attention or answers to the problems that we face. Matthew eleven four to 6. Here's how Jesus replies to John's question. It says, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. That's important. Because John can't hear past his pain. And John can't see past the walls of his prison. So you need to go back and you need to report to John the activity of God in the world. What God is up to. What I am doing in the world. Go back and tell John because he's just overwhelmed by his own hurt. He's overwhelmed by his own pain and suffering, and he can't hear it, and he can't see it. Here's what Jesus says. Tell him this. Tell him, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor, which is great, but that doesn't help John, does it? And I think John's friends are a little disappointed Because Jesus didn't say anything about getting their beloved John out of prison. That's why they came. That was the answer they wanted to take back, right? I mean, they wanted to go back and tell John, great news, tomorrow, 3 o'clock, he's busting you out. It's going to be great. That's what they wanted to go back and tell John. And this next part, this next part, what Jesus says is so good. I just wish I could have found a way to explain this better to you. But what Jesus says next is so fantastic The guys are getting ready to leave, and it just jumps in, and it speaks to us today. They're getting ready to leave and take this message back. And Jesus, the way I picture it, says, oh, yeah, guys, hold on, wait, wait. And the guys turn around. There's one more thing I want you to tell John. Tell him one more thing. Okay, Jesus, what is it? Don't forget to tell him this. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, you tell John that blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What? Yeah, tell him, blessed is anyone who does not stumble or trip over or lose heart, be discouraged on account of me. I think the guy stopped and said, hold on, before we take this message back, you got to tell us something. Are you saying, Jesus, that you might cause things or you might allow things to happen that could cause us to lose heart, to stumble, to be discouraged? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So please tell John that blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of something I have done or that I haven't done. I think the guy's like, 
Okay, this is right. Jesus, slow down a second. So you do know that he's in prison, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do know that he's in prison. He's losing heart and he's doubting. His faith is in question. You know about all that, right? Yeah, yeah, I know about that. And I know it's all because of me. So hold a minute. Are you telling us that when you guys were kids as cousins that he did something and you've been nursing a grudge for about 30 years and you couldn't wait to get him back? Is that what this is all about? No, no. Look, look at what Jesus says next in Matthew eleven eleven. Not at all. He says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, be about everybody, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says, no, don't misunderstand. I think John's the greatest guy who's ever lived up to this point. You think that, but you're just going to leave him in prison? Yeah, I am, but tell him, hang in there. Don't lose heart. Hold on to your faith. Don't lose it because I've chosen not to come and get you out. And if you know the rest of the story of John the Baptist, you know that it doesn't end well, right? I mean, John's in prison, and one day King Herod has a birthday, and he throws a great, fantastic birthday party. It's wonderful. A lot of the top officials and leaders are there, and he's having this party, and they're drinking a little bit, and they bring in a dancing girl. just happens. It's kind of weird. Happens to be his wife's daughter, so his stepdaughter. She's an older teenager. She comes in, and it must have been some kind of dance because as she's dancing at the end, King Herod looks at her, and all the guys are there, and he says, Boy, we loved your dancing. I want to reward you and give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. And he's thinking, she's a teenager. She's going to want a new iPhone or Taylor Swift tickets, right? I mean, something like that. And she does what no teenage girl would ever do. She says, hold on a minute. Let me go home and ask my mom. So she goes, and, she, and, and Salome goes back to Herodias, her mother, and she says, here's what happened. He said, I can have anything I want up to half the kingdom. What should I ask for? Herodias is waiting for this day. She says, you go back and tell him, I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter, and I want it tonight. And the king didn't want to do it, but he'd made this promise in front of all of his friends, and he didn't want to look like a fool. He didn't want to lose any esteem in their eyes. So that night, he had John the Baptist beheaded. The cousin of Jesus loses his life. And not too long after that, Jesus prays a prayer alone in a garden. Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way to accomplish this, let it be that way. I don't want to go through this. And God says no. And Jesus is arrested. He's beaten. He's crucified. And God doesn't do a thing to stop it. And Jesus didn't deserve it, and it wasn't fair. And John the Baptist didn't deserve it, and it wasn't fair. It was absolutely unexplainable that that would happen. And sometimes we experience hurt and heartache that is unexplainable to us, and we cry out to God, and he seemingly does nothing about it. And that's tough, isn't it? We've lived through that before. That doesn't seem to fit with the gospel that some people preach and rip on people too much, but some people preach and teach somewhere where they say the idea is that if you just have enough faith, if you get rid of sin or something like that, if you do that, then you're going to live a rich, blessed life. That doesn't seem to fit with what's in this story, does it? You see, here's the hard part. John was going to be in prison, and he was going to die in prison regardless of how much faith he had or how obedient he was. You see, and this this, this is hard to comprehend because we don't want to hear this. John the Baptist was in prison, 
because that is exactly where God wanted him to be. And Jesus knew that much was being required of John. And Jesus' words of discouragement, and don't discount them, where I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. I know you don't understand. I know this is unexplainable to you. But don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. Don't be discouraged on account of what I do or what I don't do. You see, I think Jesus was telling his disciples and telling us that the secret of making it through times that puzzle us, the secret is keeping a focus on the undeniable truth of God and his love and his son for us when things don't add up, when things don't make sense. And let me tell you, because it doesn't sound like it, I know. Let me tell you why this is great news for you and for me. Here is what this means. What this means is this. Your problems do not necessarily reflect your position with God. Don't miss that. Your problems do not necessarily reflect your position with God. You can't ever lose sight of that. And listen, this this is so important. I can't overstate it. Don't ever think that God doesn't love you or care for you because you suffer. Don't think that. Don't ever think that when God seems silent that he must not love you. Because when we are surrounded by the walls of our prison, of our pain, our suffering, things that are uncertain and don't make sense, the temptation is to think our pain must reflect how God feels about me. And if things are difficult, God must be upset or mad or doesn't love me. And Jesus, it's beautiful, he screams across millennia, across your pain, to tell you that if you ever want to know how I feel about you, you just look at the cross. Don't look at what you can't explain. Don't focus on your problems as hard as that is. Don't look at what doesn't make sense. Instead, focus on what is undeniably true. I came for you. I love for you. Or I love you. I paid a great price for you. Don't get focused on what you can't explain, but focus on what is undeniably true, and that's my love for you. So what do you do? In in summary, what do you do when God seems silent or inattentive to your needs and you're hurt. I think if we were to ask Jesus, he'd give us the same advice he gave John. And here's my updated version of it. When God seems inattentive, we remember and hold on to the undeniable in the midst of the unexplainable. And what is undeniable is that there is a God, and he does love you. If there's a God who's answered your prayers in the past, you've had prayers about a job or your kids or health, whatever it is, and God showed up, don't forget what God has done. Allow what God has done in the past just to speak some hope or life into what you're going through today. And in the midst of your uncertainty, Jesus offers this promise. Look at it one more time. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Anyone. In the midst of the pain or uncertainty that is unexplainable, Jesus would say, just keep placing your trust. Just keep placing your faith in me. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. I love you. Let's pray. Father, you're good. You're good when, um, when things look good. You're good when things are good. You're good, Father, when, when news is bad, when things don't make sense. You're good all the time. Lord, help us, give us eyes, give us faith, give us sight to see you all the time. 
to see you when, when our problems build prison walls around us that help us, that create an environment in which we can't see beyond the immediate hurt. Help us to see that you're in that with us. Help us to see that you care for us. Help us to see, just like what you told John, that blessed is anyone who does not stumble, who does not trip up on account of me. God, there's so much that we can't understand, so much that that seems beyond any reasonable explanation. Give us faith in those times. Give us strength. Pray for answers to questions that we have. We pray for healings. We pray for marriages to be restored. We pray for all those things. But God, when you don't do it for whatever reason, help us to keep holding on to you. We love you in Christ's name.